Folks, why don't you find your seats, and you can open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We are at the beginning of the Gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 2. We are embarking on our series in the Gospel of John, entitled That You May Believe, and I'm very excited about what I believe God wants to do through this time, through this series in John. There are some great masterpieces of literature out there, things that come to mind like the Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey and Shakespeare's Hamlet, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. There's some wonderful pieces of literature, and I certainly encourage you to read some of these. But really, there's nothing quite like this book. And there's really, in many ways, uh, nothing quite like the Gospel of John. Certainly all of God's Word is God's Word, but the Gospel of John is a masterpiece of literature. Not just because of how it phrases things and how it presents Christ, but because of the, the subject matter of the book. Really, there's no greater subject matter of any literary work than Jesus Christ, the God-man, the unique Son of God. Andreas Kostenberger, in his commentary about this Gospel, says, John's Gospel, together with the Book of Romans, may well be considered the enduring twin towers of New Testament theology. The Gospel penetrates more deeply into the mystery of God's revelation in His Son than the other canonical Gospels, and perhaps more deeply than any other biblical book. From the majestic prologue, that's the first section, to the probing epilogue, the evangelist's words are as carefully chosen as they must be thoughtfully pondered by every reader of his magnificent work. This, I believe, will be a wonderful series looking at God's Word in the Gospel of John. This is an incredible book full of life-changing and I would even say universe changing truth. And in this book, Jesus Christ is presented powerfully and persuasively. And the point really of the book, the point of the Gospel is summarized in chapter 20 where it says that these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That may sound like a fairly mundane objective, but it isn't. The point is that as we look at John, that we might believe that He is who He is. And that by believing, we might have life in His name. The sort of believing here is the type of believing where you behold and see His glory and you are changed by that. And the sort of life that it's speaking of is not just kind of mundane, regular life. It's eternal and abundant life that is intimately tied to beholding and knowing and enjoying this unique Son of God. So that's what this book is about. That we might believe and that we might have life in His name. In particular, the Gospel of John uses signs and sayings to present Christ, among other things. There are seven or more, depending on how you count them, signs in this book. 
that are things that point to Jesus and who He is and what He is like. And so we're going to take time looking at these different signs. This week we're going to look at His first sign at the wedding at Cana. Next week we'll look at His second one. Actually, Phil will be preaching from John 4. And thank you, Phil, for serving us. If you could just pray for Phil and God would use him. I'm excited to hear how God will use him. I will be away at our sending church, our Chesapeake Community Church, and speaking there and updating them, but Phil will, will be giving us the message from John 4. So there's seven signs, seven things that he did, seven miracles that he did to point to himself. We'll look at that. We'll also we'll look at his different sayings. There are seven or eight, depending on how you count them, sayings of Christ where he says, I am. He says, I am this or I am that. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the I am. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. So we're going to take time to look at those sayings. And what I'm praying, and what I'm expecting, because this is God's work and He's faithful, is that through looking at these signs and sayings, we will see the Savior. I'm not trying to do alliteration, sorry. But that's the point, that we might see the Savior, that we might believe, and by believing, have life. In His name. So that's why we're doing this. I want us to believe. And if you're a believer, you need to believe. You're not done believing. The day you became a Christian wasn't the final day you believed. And you believed enough. Yes, certainly He gave you faith to believe enough to be His. But you need to believe more. You need to believe continually. You need, and I need, to grow in our believing and understanding and beholding. So this is a book for non-believers to see Christ, and it's a book for believers to see Christ with the same objective that we might have life. Real life. And the life that He gives us is way more than we know it to be. It's way more than we expect it to be. So as we come to this book, let us not think, I got life. I already know Christ. No, No, you do. Maybe you do know life in part and you know Christ, but life, true life that He brings is way better than what you know. And He wants to bring this sort of life to us and to fill us with this sort of life that we might know Him, worship Him, and make Him known. Our ability to make Him known is tied in to experiencing this life ourselves. So, I think God has a lot in store for that and I believe He would even use this morning. So let's pray as we go to God's Word. Lord, we just thank You so much for life from You. Thank You, Lord, the difference it makes when You breathe on us and we see and behold and experience You. Thank You for Your Word, God, that through Your Word, You've given us Your precious Word that You might communicate truth to us. And So, Lord, we want to see You. So we pray today, Lord, would You show us Jesus Would You show us, Jesus, what You're like? And that by seeing You, we might believe and might have life, Lord. Thank You for Your blood, Jesus, that covers our sins. Thank You for Your grace that allows a weak and sinful man to proclaim Your eternal truths and allows weak and sinful people to experience the holy living God. Thank You, Lord. So we come to You. We look to You this morning. We look forward to what You'll do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the wedding at Cana. 
On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. John chapter 2, 1 through 12. Well, this is early on in Jesus' ministry, shortly after calling his first disciples. He goes to this wedding in Cana, and I think there's a map, if you can show the map of Cana that comes up. Cana is just about, just about due north of his hometown of Nazareth, where Jesus had grown up. Um, we know he was born in Bethlehem, but grew up in Nazareth. It's about ten miles north there. And he went to a wedding. And he was invited to the wedding. We don't know why he was invited, but his mother was there. So it may have been that this person being married, uh, one or both, were relatives of his. It may also have been that he was invited because he was a, a rabbi. He was a teacher. And they would commonly invite the, the local teachers to weddings. We don't know why, but he was invited, perhaps for both these reasons, and he came with his band of disciples to this wedding in Cana. Now, anyone here been to a wedding recently in the past few months? Okay, one. Anyone been to a wedding in the past year? Anyone been to a wedding in their lifetime? Okay, most of us have been to a wedding. What goes on at a wedding? A party. Good. Food. Dance. Yeah, there's, there's another key point you're leading out. Some people get, two people get married, yeah. <laughs> but there's also that other stuff, right? There's a party, there's eating, there's celebration. It's both solemn and sober in terms that they're making these covenantal vows one to another, and that's very serious before God. But it's also, it's a celebration. And then you go to the wedding and, I don't know, maybe the wedding starts at five. You stay there. How long do you usually stay? 
24 hours. You're gone usually, right? You go home. Everyone goes home. That's the end. Well, these weddings were a little different than our weddings. Matter of fact, I think they did a better job at having a good time at their weddings. Some of these weddings could go for a whole week. You'd come to the wedding, and the way it would work is, is the bride would be uh, led from her house through the streets of the town to the site of the wedding ceremony, which was usually the groom's house or nearby. And the whole town would come out. They would come out and they would walk with the bride through the streets. And it was a time of celebration. There'd be music, perhaps be singing, perhaps even be dancing. They would decorate. They would carry lamps on a, a pole and walk through the streets together. It was a festive occasion. And the whole town would join in. Neighbors, family, friends would join in with this wedding celebration and march through the streets with the bride to the groom's house. They would get to the groom's house and they would have exchanging of vows, that sort of thing, and solemn promises before God with one another. And then the party would begin. And everybody was invited to the party and it involved feasting and eating and celebrating. And sometimes the celebration would go on for days. It wasn't everyone, that last dance, you know, the couple comes out, we have last dance, that's the clue, you know, you say bye, you're supposed to leave after the last dance. You don't hang out. It's considered rude. While they didn't do that, at least for a while, at least for seven days, they would party and feast together and celebrate together. That's what their weddings were like. That's an important thing, I think, to understand as we, as we drop into this particular story, as Jesus shows up with His disciples. This was a multi-day feast, perhaps, that was going on. People were enjoying and celebrating the marriage of this couple. Before we get into the text, one other thing I want to talk about a little bit, because I think it's important for us to understand, if we are to appreciate what went on here, is to understand what the Bible teaches about wine. Now, this is admittedly somewhat of a controversial topic. I'm going to, by God's grace, try to, to explain what I believe the Scriptures teach on this. But I recognize that it's controversial for a number of reasons. One is because some of us maybe personally or around us have, have felt the bad effects of overuse of alcohol. And so when you talk about this subject, those things come to mind. I understand that. And the Scripture does talk about the idea, the, the, the sin of drunkenness. It's also controversial culturally because about a hundred or so years ago, a strong movement in this country had a huge influence on us. It was called the temperance movement. And it was largely Christians and it started back in the 1800s. As a matter of fact, you could get a temperance Bible. They had temperance Bibles back then, and it was a, a Bible that went through all the reasons why alcohol was a bad thing. I don't know how they did that, but there was such a thing. And so we have this history. In the 18th Amendment, actually, they made an amendment to the Constitution, actually, outlawing alcohol at one point, and then that was repealed later. But that's our cultural context. And so when we come to this topic of wine, not only does our personal experience influence us, but our culture does too. And our culture largely, uh, at least to some degree, has kind of a, a sense of negative association with wine. Now, the Bible is clear on that. The Bible does not avoid that reality that there are negative associations and negative and sinful things that can come with it. But the Bible presents overall a fairly positive picture of wine. There are verses about its negative effect, but there's a largely positive picture. There's over 260 verses or mentions of the word for wine. There's, there's, I think, more than that. And most of them are fairly positive. 
take a look at some of these verses. If you could put the, the next group of verses up. Wine is associated with celebration and joy. Being together and celebrating God's blessing with God's people in Scripture. That's the, the overall sense of it. So we have verses like Deuteronomy 14 where God talks about worship at the temple. Go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. And the word for strong drink is probably a beer that they have. Whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your whole household. Psalm 4, 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. If you go to the next verses. Part of the blessing from God when we honor Him with our wealth, it says, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. To have lots of wine was a blessing. And Isaiah 25, this is a passage about the final time. And it's a picture of a great feast. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. So, In Scripture, wine is associated with celebration and joy. And it was appropriate to have it at a wedding. It was appropriate to to have it at celebrations together and to enjoy it. That's the picture in Scripture. Andreas Kostenberger, in his commentary as well, he says, in Jewish thought, wine is a symbol of joy and celebration. Quoting from a rabbinical teaching, he says, there is no rejoicing save with wine. So to live in the times of the Bible, wine was closely associated with joy and celebration. Now some have taught that the wine in Scripture is really grape juice. And though there are multiple states of wine, there can be, wine can be in its earliest stages, not with low alcohol content. And it can actually be treated to to keep that alcohol content from from growing. There are multiple states of wine, but but overall, in Scripture, when it talks about wine, it is fermented grape juice with alcohol in it. And matter of fact, as I searched the Scriptures, I couldn't find one instance where it was clear to me that it was grape juice. If they wanted to avoid the alcohol content in wine, what they commonly did was they diluted the wine. They didn't make grape juice. They just took the wine and added water to it and diluted it. So that's how they made it their regular drink. And I just don't think in Scripture we can assert that it's grape juice because the same word is used for these uh, times of celebration for wine as is used for the times and the warnings about wine. The Scripture does say that, that the overuse of alcohol leads to drunkenness and sin. And so, in those cases, if the word for wine is something that's used to make you drunk and therefore lead to sin, the same word must be for the celebrations, the same meaning. And so they both have alcohol content. The difference is how you use it, not what's in the, in the grape juice. So in all cases, it's wine, alcoholic wine, and, and not grape juice. That, that thinking, I think, came up because people needed a way to understand how God could say that wine was for celebration when we know that people who drink too much wine do sinful things. So is somehow God... Supplying the drugs for people to do bad things, that was the, the thinking. So we must have a, a way to understand this. So that's, kind of, I believe, where the grape juice idea came up. It's really not in Scripture. The wine overall is, is, has alcoholic content. But the Scripture also warns us about the dangers 
of overuse of wine throughout the pages of Scripture. Proverbs 20, wine is a mocker, a strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Uh, Galatians, one of the fruits of the sinful nature of the flesh is drunkenness. One of the evil fruits is drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18 says clearly, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Romans 13 as well. There's a number of verses that warn us to, to stay away. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. We're not to get drunk. That's clear in Scripture. And so we must understand the word for wine is alcoholic drink because you can abuse it and you can use it correctly. So this is all kind of a, a preamble to looking at this particular text, but I think it's important for us to understand the picture of wine. And so in John 2, the association with wine is about joy and celebration. Let me just do a little tangent on how do we as Christians rightly handle alcoholic drinks. Scripture, by and large, has a positive view of wine when used properly. And so I think we need to recognize that wine and, and alcoholic drinks have a place in hospitality and celebration. That's the scriptural example. But also we need to recognize that wine and alcoholic drinks can be abused. So somehow there's a, there's, a, there's a line at one point where you go from appropriate celebration and enjoyment to abuse. And I think that's what the issue comes down to. And I would just say rule of thumb, I think a drink or two in celebrating is fine. For me at least, more than that will take me over that line. And so for you, you need to think through that, what it looks like. Now for some of us, I recognize that because of maybe our past, and our own temptations here, the best thing is to avoid it entirely. And that's, that's good, and that's fine. If that's to the Lord, then that is good. I don't mean to discourage you. For some of you, that is worship for you not to touch it. But for many of us, we need to be able to discern the difference biblically between right use and wrong use. Does that make sense? Good. I hope that serves you. And I hesitate to talk about a controversial topic, but I want you to understand what's going on in John 2. So you can appreciate and benefit from this sign that Jesus gave us. So let's continue. Let's, let's dive in to the text and the story. It's the third day, and there's a wedding. It might have been a Tuesday, meaning by third day, or three days after his time with his disciples. We're not sure, but he's at a wedding, and something tragic happens at this wedding. Again, celebration, hospitality, wine enjoying time with one another. Having wine was really important at a wedding. And something happens. The wine runs out. Now, in a lot of ways, because of the association of wine with hospitality and celebration, for the wine to run out was the same thing as basically to turn the lights out at the party. You ever done that? You ever, you ever been at a party, maybe at your own house, and, and it's getting kind of late? And maybe you don't turn the lights up, but maybe you say, hey guys, you can turn the lights out when you leave. I'm going to bed. And that usually puts a damper on the party. Right? That's what running out of wine, in a sense, was like turning the lights out. Guys, we're done. See you later. It was, it was a, a, really a problem. A real a tragic thing for, in the middle of your wedding feast, to run out of wine. And we don't know. Mary was aware of this. Mary might have been part of the, the crew that was helping to run the wedding. We're not sure, but... But she comes up to Jesus and says, there's no more wine. 
I don't think she just said it like, there's no more wine. I think, there's no more wine. There's a problem here, Jesus. We're out of wine. It's a wedding. This is your cousin Jeremiah's wedding, and we're out of wine. Now, why would she do that? Why would she go to Jesus? Do you think maybe Jesus had a connection with a local wine merchant? He, he grew up, he went to school with a local wine merchant, and he could get a good deal on wine? Do you think Mary was just venting? She's just upset and she just wanted to vent about how she felt? No, I think Mary understood to some degree who Jesus was. Now, if you read out in other parts of the scripture, it doesn't look like until later she really grasped it. It, it seems that earlier on she, didn't, she hadn't really put the pieces together yet. She had a lot of things go on, but she didn't fully understand. Like many Jews, they did not understand. They would have seen him as a prophet, perhaps a powerful prophet, but not the Messiah, the Son of God. And so I think she came to him because she knew he was a prophet of sorts. I don't know. I don't know how she would know that. You know, Jesus really didn't embark on his ministry till later in life, but, but maybe just raising a son up who never sinned <laughs> was a clue. Maybe, maybe just in conversations, Jesus would just kind of tell her what she was already thinking. I mean, I'm sure there, there was an appropriate way to do that with your mother, but, you know, so she knew that he was a prophet of sorts. So she went to him and she said, There's no wine. Look at his reaction. What does he say? What does he say to her when, he's, when she says that? Woman, what does this have to do with you and me? Or what does this have to do with me? Woman. Now, we, if you said to your mom, woman, you'd be in a lot of trouble. But in that day, woman was the, the phrase you would use, the word term we would use for a generic adult female. Okay? So it was like ma'am or miss. But he calls his mother ma'am. If you talk to your mother, usually you'd say mother. And there was a word for that. You'd say mother. And, and, but Jesus says woman, ma'am. It's interesting to notice the dynamics that are going on. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture as Jesus interacts with his family. They press on him things. And they try to, I think, perhaps use their leverage as family members to get him to do things. So, um, so later on, his brothers and his sisters come to him and they, they try to say, what are you doing? And he, and he says, who is my mother and my brother and my sisters? The believers. So they press on him claims and he presses back. That's what I think he's doing here. She's pressing on him a claim. She needs help. She really just wants to deal with the wine thing. That's what she's thinking. Her, her mindset is, we're running out of wine. That's a bad thing. Let's get Jesus to fix it. And so he presses back by calling her woman. Ma'am, I'm not your mere son. I'm something much more. Woman, what does this have to do with me? What are you doing here? You're putting pressure on me. What does it have to do with me? He says, says that, and then he says, my hour has not yet come. Don't, don't press me. My hour has not yet come. Now, it's interesting, again, I think in John 7, the same sort of thing happens with his brothers. He says, I'm not going to the feast, and later he does. So in these interactions, it looks like they press on him. He presses back and says, guys, you have no right to press me. But then later on, for his own reasons, decides to do it. That's what goes on here. His mom presses on him. He presses back. Woman, what does this have to do with you and me? My hour has not yet come. And then later on, he, well, right away, he does answer her requests. So he says, my hour has not yet come. What could that mean? What could it mean that his hour had not yet come? Did it mean that he was just a, not a morning person? 
I just don't feel like doing it. My hour, I do better in the afternoon. No, he didn't mean that. Could it mean that his hour was, he meant the time to start doing miracles hasn't come yet? You know, at some point, you know, I'm going to start doing miracles, but not now, please. Not my hour. I think it's more than that. And when we come to expressions like that in Scripture, we certainly want to look at context and think it could be this, could be that. But we also want to look at the use of that term. Is it used elsewhere in Scripture, and in particular by John, in recounting these things, elsewhere? And so we can look in other parts of John and see this used. And I think we have an overhead for these verses. John chapter 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then in John 17, at the end of His ministry on earth, He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. So when He says, My hour has not yet come, He means the the apex of His ministry, the, the peak, the climax of what He's doing. That key time when He would do it all. And he, in speaking of that hour, He means His death on the cross and His resurrection. But I think He also means everything that flows with that. The fi- it includes the final hour when He returns for His people. It, it means the time where He does all these things. That's what He means. My hour, my time to do what the Father would have me do. To, to come and to die for sins and to, to appease the holy just wrath of God and to suffer for My people, and to rise again, has not yet come. My time to return and bring about the kingdom has not yet come. That's what He's saying to His mother. My hour has not yet come. Why would He say that at a wedding feast? Why, would he, why couldn't He just say, no, I'm not going to do any miracles right now. I think there's something about the wedding feast connected to the hour that He's indicating here through His sign. You see, the hour is not just His death and resurrection, though that's the core of it. His hour is also His own wedding feast. His own wedding feast. And Jesus lived looking forward to His own wedding. The own time when He would be the groom and His bride would be brought to Him, ready for Him, dressed in righteousness, prepared for Him, when He would have His celebration, when the festive throng would join with Him and celebrate, when they would become one together as husband and wife and enjoy a week of feasting. But even more, we know that the wedding feast in Scripture goes on and on and on and on and never finishes. So every marriage here on earth including this one in Cana, is a picture of the ultimate marriage. And every wedding celebration that we go to is a picture of the final wedding celebration. When because of what Christ has done, this is the amazing thing, that that Christ has purchased His bride. The price that He paid to purchase His bride was not just a mere thousand dollars or whatever. It was His very blood shed on the cross and His righteous life given for His bride. He has purchased His dear bride. He loves His bride. He is a perfect husband. And in Ephesians 5, the whole picture of godly husbanding is derived from Jesus' husbanding, His love for His bride. He gave His life for her. 
He loves His bride more than Himself and gave Himself for that bride. And He's looking forward to being with that bride and enjoying that forever. So the final hour, I think, points to the wedding feast. His time had not yet come. Why do you want me to make wine now? It's not my time yet. It's not my wedding feast yet. But He does make the wine. And look at what He does when He makes the wine. What does He do? He, Mary says, whatever He does, whatever He tells you to do, do it. And it says there were six stone water jars. There were six jars there. And they were these giant wash basin jars. They probably had a wide brim, a lid at the top. Whatever that's called. Ridge? Rim? Rim, that's the word. A wide rim at the top. And it was 20 or 30 gallons and there would be water in there and it was used for washing. Washing your hands, washing plates, cups, things like that. So Jesus goes over to these stone, well, to the servant and says, fill these jars with water. So they're 20, 30 gallon jars, big stone jars. He says, fill them up. And the servants fill them up and they fill them up halfway. No. They fill them up three quarters of the way. No. They fill them up to the brim. All the way up. They... They fill them up as high as they could be. He fills these stone jars, these earthen vessels, with water to the brim. And he says, now take some and bring it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast was basically the MC, the master of ceremonies, in charge of probably all the servants, probably in charge of the whole thing. Uh, he was like, what's that movie with Franz? With, uh, Franz, but even better, the guy, that guy in charge of the wedding. What, what is that movie? But, Father of the Rye, yeah. He's, he's like a super Franz. Yeah. Franck. Yes, Franck. You're right. It is Franck. So he's the, master, he's the master of ceremonies. He's the master of the feast. He's in charge of everything. And so he says, uh, Jesus tells them to draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Can you imagine being the servant at that point? I, I mean, I, it must have been quite an experience. First off, I mean, you probably knew Jesus was someone special. And then he asks you to fill these wash basins. They're wash basins, guys. They're, they're like, I mean, we don't use things like that, but it would be like filling your kitchen sink with water or filling a trash can, a 50-gallon trash, trash can with water. Okay? So they're thinking probably, what is he doing? This is interesting. And then he says, now draw some out. And I don't know, you know, we don't know uh, what went on for the servants, whether they were like watching the thing and they saw when it turned to wine. or We don't know what went on, but we know that they brought it to the master of the feast and he did, it was now wine. They knew. He didn't. And then the master of the feast samples the wine. He samples the wine. And this is good stuff. It's really good wine. And probably among all the weddings this guy has done, this is probably the best wine he's ever had. He is so impressed. Now, he could have just said nothing, right? Oh, great. we got wine now. Just start serving it. But he's so impressed, what does he do? He goes to the bridegroom. And he probably did it in front of everybody. Because he was so impressed. The the bridegroom was the guy that supplied the wine. He was so impressed by the quality and quantity of this wine as well, I would imagine, that he says in front of everybody, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely... In other words, they've had a little bit of wine and their discernment maybe isn't as good as it was for drinking wine. When they've drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine 
until now. He says it in front of everybody. This, this guy is amazing. Usually people do it this way. He's saved the best wine for now. Now, I'm sure the groom is like, what? I guess so. Yeah, I got, I got the best wine. <laughs> you know, he probably didn't know what was going on. But the guy is so excited by the quality and the timing of the wine. And then in verse 11, it says, This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. Why would it say that? What is going on? Why is it that changing water to wine is the first of His signs. Is this passage just about a neat trick that somebody could do to supply wine for people who ran out at a wedding? Is it just about the fact that Jesus is someone who can do cool things? Almost like a magic trick? Wow, water to wine. And that's His sign? What does it say? I think it's so much more than that because look at what it says. This, the first of His signs. What does the sign do? sign points to something, right? So this is the first of His signs. This is the first of His signs. This is something Jesus did to point to Himself. And not just that He had some power, but to point to the very nature of who He is. His signs are not just things to say, I can do powerful things. All of His signs in Scripture are well thought out, intentional actions to display the character and glory of God. So when He chooses to make wine, He isn't just doing a cool thing. He's pointing to something about Himself and about His ways that's profound. For it says after this, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested His glory. He showed His glory. He demonstrated who He is and what He's like. Through this sign. He showed Himself. And what did the disciples do? Cool trick. No. They believed in Him. They put their faith in Him. There was something about the nature of how He did things that so impressed His disciples that they put their faith in Him. I don't think they put their faith in Him just because He could do cool tricks. They saw something about who He is and what He is like. And the whole use of... <clears throat> Language in, the, in this story points to something much, much more than that Jesus has the power to turn water into wine. Yes, indeed, He does. But there's more to this. It says He manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. So what in particular about His glory does this show? Well, I've hinted at it already. I think one of the things is that it points to His wedding feast. He manifested His glory by demonstrating what His wedding feast would be like because of who He is. He has given His all for His bride. He's given His life. He's bled on the cross and died to take away our sins so that He could welcome His bride into His presence forever. 
And this wedding feast that he is going to have is not just some small party. It says that the, the master of the ceremony says, you've, you've saved the best wine for the last. Well, usually it's the good wines first and then the cheap wine, but you brought the best wine last. What is going to be last? The wedding feasts. And that is where the best wine is going to, to be served and enjoyed. Last at that wedding feast. And how much wine did he provide? Lots of wine. And how much did he fill the vessels up? To the brim. And it was the best. And so his disciples, in watching him do this, saw something about him that this one is an amazing prophet. This one is incredible. This one brings grace abundant and joy abundant and celebration abundantly. He's showing what it is to be invited to his wedding feast. It's, it's not just some boring wedding where you fall asleep. And he says something about knowing him and relating to him. That to know him and to relate with him is to celebrate. And to walk with him and to be part of that wedding feast is to know joy. And not just to know it a little bit, but to know it a lot in abundance. And a question for us is, do we perceive of Christianity and do we perceive of Christ as somehow some somber, boring, lifeless thing? Or do we understand what it's really about? What it teaches us in this passage that when the Savior comes to our lives, He brings joy overflowing. And there's lots in Scripture about this. Peter talks about joy unspeakable. It's joy beyond what you would know. The the joy of the wedding feast is going to outshine anything we ever experienced here on earth. The wine that He gives is way better than earthly wine. Really, earthly wine, the experience of earthly wine, is only a picture of the heavenly wine and the joy that we are to have in Him and we will have in Him. He comes to give us joy and to be part of this wedding feast to know joy beyond measure. And it's interesting, He fills stone jars with water to the brim. And it makes me think of the fact that we are earthen vessels. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Those stone water jars in a lot of ways are us individually and corporately as God's people. We are earthen vessels. And He comes as as the groom and fills us up to the brim and fills us with the best wine. He fills us with joy and celebration. To know Christ is to know joy and celebration. Is that your picture of Christ? Is that your picture of Christianity? That's John 2's picture of Christ. Christianity. So He showed His glory. He demonstrated His glory by showing what He's like. And it's not just for the final wedding feast. Though that will be great. There will be no, there'll be no limiting our joy. Sin will be done away with. But it's, but it's also for now. We are to experience joy now. Ephesians 5.18 Paul says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. But... Be filled with the Spirit. 
Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. God wants us now to be filled with the Spirit as the right and better alternative to wine. Don't choose to get drunk on wine. Instead, be intoxicated by the living God dwelling in you and giving you joy. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy, love and joy and peace and patience. To know God is to experience these things. That's what He's teaching us in John 2. That's what the Scriptures teach us. This is standard Christianity. Yes, life can be hard. Yes, sin remains. Yes, there are trials. Yes. But joy is to be the experience of the believer in all these things because Christ dwells in us. Because our sins are forgiven and our future is secured in Him. Because He lives in us and He is a God of joy and love and power. And so, even in the ups and downs of life, the Christian's life is to be one of joy. And it only gets better for the believer. It only gets better. Let me read to you an account of somebody as they were filled to the brim. And there are seasons of high joy and celebration. There might be times when your joy isn't as expressive. But to be a believer is to experience life like this. If you could put up Sarah Edwards' testimony. She's just recounting for her this experience. Since the word of one of Mr. Watts' hosannas powerfully affected me, and in the course of the conversation, I uttered them as the real language of my heart with great earnestness and emotion. Hosanna to King David's son who reigns on a superior throne. And while I was uttering the words, my mind was so deeply impressed with the love of Christ and a sense of His immediate presence that I could with difficulty... Refrain from rising from my seat and leaping for joy. I think she should have just done it. I don't think she should have refrained. But anyhow, I continued to enjoy this intense and lively and refreshing sense of divine things accompanied with strong emotions for nearly an hour after which I experienced a delightful calm and peace and rest in God until I retired for the night. And During the night, both waking and sleeping, I had joyful views of divine things and a complacent rest of soul in God. This woman was intoxicated with the Spirit of God, with the wine of the Kingdom, as God filled her and gave her an awareness in His power of what it is to be forgiven and what it is to know Him and what it is to live for Him and enjoy Him. Do you think this is for you? Do you believe this is for you? Jesus did this miracle at Cana to point to Himself and to point to what He's like and to point to what life in Him is like. We know John says in verse chapter 20, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is for us. Life as a Christian is to be 
full of joy and celebration in the Savior. If the band could come up, we're going to close in song. And I just want to encourage you to consider before God whether you believe this. Because I think He wants you to believe it and He wants you to experience this sort of life. Now, I can't guarantee that you'll have an experience just like Sarah Edwards, but to be a believer is to experience this wine of the kingdom in abundance. To experience this joy and celebration that He's purchased. It's to be welcomed to that wedding feast. So, we're going to we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate with a closing song. And I encourage you just to go before the Lord. Maybe you are aware that I am experiencing right now this joy. So come and sing and celebrate. Maybe you're aware, you know what, it's been tough. I've struggled. That can happen because of weakness, because of sin, whatever. Ups and downs. We want to pray for you. We want to pray for one another in these times. So we'll, we'll close in song and then... The, We'll be up, some folks will be up here. If you'd like prayer, we would love to pray for you that you would enjoy the joy and celebration that Christ has, has brought.